Amen sermon series that we have been uh, taking a journey as a church through the Gospel of John throughout the past few months and just looking at what uh, God's Word says through the Gospel of John, the way John saw it when Jesus was here on earth with him. John um, was the disciple. He described himself to be the disciple that Jesus loved. And uh, we truly understand today that God loves us all the same. Amen? That we're all loved the same, that there's no uh, favorites in God's family. Amen? We're all the same. And hopefully it's that way in your family that you don't have to have favorites and who's who and who gets what. It's all about each of us loving each other and cherishing each other. Amen? So we're going to look today in the Gospel of John chapter 21. John chapter 21. If you have your Bibles, flip over to the Gospel of John. It's the fourth book in your New Testament. We're going to look at verse or chapter 21, and we're looking at verses 15 through 19 today. John 21. Easter is a special season uh, for the body of Christ and for all the earth because Jesus paid the price for all of us. So let's stand as we read these few verses, and uh, we'll hopefully be able to see that they will apply to our lives today, and we can make decisions here to apply them through God's help. John 21, verses 15 through 19. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs. Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question the third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands. And others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for the Easter resurrection, the power of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the uh, drama we just saw, Lord, the human video where these kids displayed what happened on that day, that three days he laid in the ground, that on the third day he come out victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And God, it was on our behalf, Lord, that we don't have to pay the price for our sin. That death, we don't have to, uh, that's not the wages of our sin if we accept your son as our savior. God, help, help us today to make decisions. Just as you said and you told Peter here to follow you. Help us to do that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody says, amen. You can be seated. I love the story of the resurrection of Christ because it empowers us and it emboldens us to see a resurrected Jesus. A Jesus that overcome obstacles that humanity cannot overcome. Aren't you glad in your life that Jesus can do more through you than you could do for yourself? Amen. That he can empower you and that he can gift you with the ability to do things that you couldn't do prior to salvation in your life. And today I can 
stand here and testify to you on behalf of myself that I know that the way I lived prior to being a Christian, prior to being saved, that I was not the person that I am today. That I do the things I do today and live the way I live because Christ lives in me. Peter and Paul and all these disciples that we read about and John, all those people were empowered and gifted to live a Christian life. And the same power that they received, it says in the New Testament that we can receive that same power. The power that raised Jesus from the dead can be on the inside of us and cause our lives to be different. He can change us. He can motivate us. I thank uh, God for the ability to be changed. You know why? Because I know I needed change. The Ben Carrier that used to do the things that I've done uh, was not the Ben Carrier I am today because God changed me. We all need change. We need to give up on our sin and allow God to take those things and cast them in the sea of forgetfulness so that he don't have to remember them anymore. On the day of judgment, we don't want to stand before God and give an account for our sins. We want to stand before him and say, I'm washed in the blood of the Lamb. I've been cleaned by your son's blood. And today as we look at this message, I just want us to see that uh, as Jesus is talking to Simon Peter here, Jesus had to hunt him down. You see, Simon Peter had spent three and a half years in ministry with Jesus. Jesus had chose him specifically and told him, come and follow me. Your name used to be Simon, now it'll be Peter. I'm going to make you uh, more solid than you used to be. And he told Peter this, and Peter followed him for three and a half years, and Peter thought he could do things on his own still. Sound like anybody in the church to you? There's a lot of Christians today that think they have the ability to do things on their own without God's help. And I'm telling you that we fail when we do it ourselves. We will always fail when we try to clean up our own life. We will always fail when we try to overcome our sin by ourselves. And Peter, he thought all the way through this ministry with Jesus that he could still do things on his own. Just a few days prior to this lesson that we're learning today, Peter took out a sword and cut a man's ear off. He cut a man's ear off standing right beside of Jesus. How many things do we do and we think nobody knows, but actually Jesus is standing right beside of us? The Bible says he'll never leave us nor forsake us. He goes with us all the way to the end. Jesus is committed to us. So as Peter does this, uh, Jesus is standing right beside him. Jesus looks over and says, Peter, what are you doing? Don't do that. And he reaches down and picks up the ear and miraculously puts it back on that man. Have you ever made mistakes and wished Jesus could clean up your mess? Peter saw this firsthand right there. Peter and Jesus just miraculously took care of what Peter had just messed up. I know there's people in this room today that our life is a mess and we need God to clean up our mess. So as, as Peter had this to happen, he, he was there and just the night before, Jesus was in the upper room with him. Jesus is telling him, say, you know, there's going to be one to deny me. There's one that's going to sell me and there's one going to deny me. Peter said, Lord, I'll never deny you. See, he's talking out of boldness of his own flesh that he thought, I can do this by myself. And Peter says, I'll never deny you, Jesus. Jesus is like, well, I'll tell you what. The rooster's going to crow three times, and when you hear that happen, you will have denied me three times. 
So Peter's out in the courtyard after they come and get Jesus, and they take him in. And the, you, you saw the Passion of the Christ, the movie, I'm sure, the where that they took the cat of nine tails and they whipped Jesus' back. They ripped the flesh off of him. Peter is standing within an earshot of this happening. Peter is right there. He's in the outer courtyard of, of this house, of this leader in Israel, in, in Jerusalem, and he hears the, the squall of Jesus. Can you imagine the pain he dealt with whenever mankind was persecuting him? Crucifixion was not an easy uh, uh, thing that was just hidden away on the backside somewhere. They truly wanted it to be the most cruel punishment that humans could endure. Peter heard these screams of Jesus as they hit him, as they spit on him. He's standing out in the courtyard. The Bible says the little girl walks up and looks at Peter and says, Hey, ain't you one of his? Ain't you one of his disciples? Peter says, No. No, I'm not. I thought you were going to stand up for him, Peter. I thought you was the, the brave one that was cutting off the ear when Jesus was standing beside of you. But now that you hear Jesus squealing, now you're backing up. And I see this happening as, as Peter's there, and I can imagine the guilt that he felt at that very instant that he knew that he had just betrayed Jesus. He had just sold out Jesus. I don't know him. Bible says three times in a row another person would come and say, do you, do you know him? You're, you're a Galilean. You, you speak like him. You look like him. You act like him. Or you must be one of his. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. The third time it says that he even swore. He cussed. That's pretty amazing, right? This is a Christian that went three and a half years in ministry with Jesus, one of Jesus' most prized disciples, cussing. I don't know him. <laughs> and we look at this story and we think about this story and we try to put all the blame on Peter all the time and act like he's the only one that's ever denied Jesus. Whenever I start thinking about that, there's times in our lives that we, we have a moment where that somebody maybe at work comes up and the, and the topic comes up about religion and we back up. We act like, no, I don't, I don't know anything about church. I just go, you know. I don't know anything about that. Spent our whole life in church. Come in and testify in church. Praise God in church. Sing songs about Jesus in church. Then at work we back up. We deny Jesus a whole lot like what Peter done. You see, because our commitment level is not that of what it's supposed to be. Commitment. Everybody say the word commitment. Commitment. This is like a word that you don't hear a lot anymore in our culture that we live in, in the world we live in, in America. Commitment is a kind of a thing of the past. And I started looking through and thinking about what commitment means to us today and in our generation and former generation. And as you you know, I've, I've done some studies recently about um at my work for my job about what it's like these uh, different uh, cultures in generations. That there was a generation known as the greatest generation. 
They call them the greatest generation. It was the people that built America that when the Industrial Revolution came and all these great things began happening in America, it was a generation that built things, that, that stayed dedicated to things, and they wanted to see America be a better place. They were committed to the cause. I started thinking about that, and, and you know, they got different generations, like Generation Next and, and the Millennials and all these different generations. They put us in different groups. And they say that we're the generation that, that I'm a part of is some of the least committed they are. So if you was born between 1960 and 1980, you're not very committed to anything. And I can truly look around and see that that's kind of a fact. Our commitment level is not good enough. Look at your neighbor and say, are you very committed? <laughs> Just how committed are you? I'm not talking about omitted, you know, omitted to the, to the ward. I'm talking about committed. <laughs> We've got to be committed, right? Our commitment level. Commitment, the very word, means the state or quality of being dedicated to a cause, to activity, or to a purpose. And as I think about Jesus Christ and what it means on Easter was he was committed to the cause. Jesus overcame the obstacle of, of his humanity side. Jesus was human. He was born of a virgin, Mary, and he was born with a body like we have a body. It was God in, in human form. And as Jesus wore this body, he, the Bible says he endured the same temptations that we have. In the same way, we don't like commitment and we don't like, uh, you know, there's, we, we don't enjoy commitment. Jesus didn't enjoy commitment. And whenever it come time for the cross and the closer it got, you read through the story of the Gospel of John as we studied through this. We see that Jesus was, was committed to the purpose. He was committed to the cause, but there was anguish on his heart. It wasn't easy. It wasn't like Jesus just easily gave his body to be nailed to that cross. It was something he had to overcome. He had to commit to it. And as he committed, on our behalf, why shouldn't we Commit to his purpose on his behalf. If he paid the price for our sin so that we could be set free from the burden of our sin, why shouldn't we be committed to the cause that he has for all of humanity to be set free? Nobody is outside of the grace of God. I don't believe that we can draw one breath without the grace of God. I don't care the worst sinner that you can think of, maybe that's locked up in the deepest, darkest prison on the face of the earth. They are not outside of the grace of God. No matter what sin they've committed, all sin is the same. Amen? We're all the same. Jesus' grace covers our sin. So as I was thinking about this, that the commitment level and, and some of the things and looking at our society and our culture, I began to look through and think about what were some uh, lacking commitments in our culture that we live in. And I began to think about my life. 
one of the things about my life is what do you have to do to make money? Work. The Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. Look at your neighbor and say, if you don't work, you don't eat. It's as simple as that. So some of the seasoned saints in this room, you need to tell this other generation I'm talking about, won't you look over somebody a little bit younger and you'd say, if you don't work, you don't eat. It's as simple as that. I'm telling you, I like apple butter. I like biscuits. I like gravy. I like bacon. I like it all. But if I don't work, I don't get none, right? Got to work if you want to eat. I think God, you know, God was just thinking, you know, there's going to be some people that thinks they'll be able to eat if they don't work, and it don't happen that way. We need to work so we can eat. So I begin to think about my life and my, my uh, job, the way I work to eat and take care of the things that I have. And as I looked at this, I, I began to think about how many jobs I've had in my career. I've had a lot of jobs. So as I begin to look through those jobs and, and look through them, I'm thinking, you know what? It looks like there's like a three-year door here. <laughs> I'll go to a job, and about three years later, get sick of that, and I'll go do something else. Amen? Has anybody else had more than one job? I know there's a bunch of people in this room that's had more than one job. So it's, it's like this deal that whenever you get sick of something, you just, you're not committed anymore, so you just go do something else, right? So I see this pattern, and as I, one time I, I put in a resume for a job, and they, they, the person, they, they're doing phone interviews now. I think it's pretty smart, really, you know what I'm saying? It's like used to, if you went to an interview, you had to go talk to somebody in person. Now they're like, there's too many people wanting a job, so I'm just going to call them first, and we'll do a phone interview. They done a phone interview. They called me, and they said, uh, okay, you wor said you, you worked here and here on your resume. That's just a few years. Why'd you leave that job? Well, I went on to another job. Okay, wrote it down. And then she she went through that. And she got to the end. She says, well, it sounds like you don't stay anywhere very long. That's a bad sign, right? If you're trying to get a job with somebody and they're, they're wanting somebody for the long-term job, then, then wherever you say, well, yeah, I, I come and I'll stay for about three years, they're like, you're not the right guy. <laughs> so it hurt me in my interview. So as I began to look at this, I, I thought, well, I'm just going to look up and see what the national average is. The national average for a tenure of a job is 4.4 years, 4.4 years. So most people stay at a job about 4.4 years and move on to the next one in the culture and the generation we live in today. Look at your neighbor and say, that ain't very committed. <laughs> and the funny part is, you know, that as I looked, looked into this and began to dig into this, I thought, you know what, if, if I've switched jobs that many times, I didn't go to college. Till later in life, I went back. But, but uh, people switch career paths how many times? Albie? How many? Oh, how long have you been going to college? Just move on? Okay. Okay. Is anybody else in college in here? Is anybody else in college? Yeah, there's several here that ain't going to raise their hand. And how many times have you switched career paths already? Several, I'm sure. Most people, once they go to college, they can't even decide what, there's no commitment. You know what I mean? Used to people would, I know talking to like Leslie's grandmother, when she went to college, she committed to college, and she chose a career path, and that's what she stayed with. She stuck with it. There used to be a generation that committed to things, Ernie. 
once they signed their name to the line that it actually meant something. And I've heard my grandpa talk about used to that there was a day where that you could buy a piece of ground with a handshake. <laughs> you can't do that anymore. Now you've got to sign 55 pages of, of <laughs> documents. And then, you, then at the end, they're like, you didn't sign your name enough. You know what I mean? It's like they want blood or something now. There's no commitment. And the reason they had to sign so many papers to buy a, a house now is because they know you're not very committed. No matter how many times you sign your name, when you get sick of that house, you'll just let it go in foreclosure and go get another one later. Everybody say, oh, me. <laughs> Pastor Ben's talking about me. I'm talking about me. When did I get married? <laughs> when, when was this? June something of when? 2005. June of 2005, I got married. How many times have I moved? How many houses we lived in? Six different houses in since 2005. Everybody say, Pastor Ben, you're not very committed. So as I'm preaching, I'm not just talking to you, I'm talking to me. This sermon guilted me a little bit. I was like, wow. You know, usually it's like, wow, you know, uh, this, is con this is not condemning, this is convicting. You know, there's a difference, right? John chapter 3, you know, the one that everybody preaches all the time, John 3.16, the verse we all know. No matter who we are, John 3.16, it's like we all know that verse. It says that Jesus didn't come into the world to convict, condemn the world, but to convict the world. There's a difference in condemnation and conviction. I'm not saying these things to condemn you. I'm saying these things so that God's word can condemn, convict us. He don't want to damn us to hell. He wants to convict us so we'll change. Look at your neighbor and say, you need to change. <laughs> You're a whole lot like Pastor Ben, sounds like. I'm talking about commitment here today. There's, there's some not committed people in this room. I don't know if you're, anybody else is as open as I am about it, but I, I would about guarantee that there's a lot of, of, of people in this room that lacks commitment. Jesus didn't like commitment. So as I thought about that four and a half years, that's, that's not a long time for, for a tenure of a job. And, and, you know, like Ernie, Ernie went to work at the railroad and spent just retired this past uh, uh, month, and had a, he's had a good retirement so far, just sitting. And Leslie bought him a, you know, whenever you're a kid and you get like a toy truck that you remote control, you think that's awesome, right? That's what you get when you retire, too. Just letting you know, it's like you're a kid, and then, then you work all your life, and then you become a kid again. It's just the way it is. It's kind of sad, really. But uh, Ernie's got a toy truck now, so congratulations on your retirement, Ernie. Yes, congratulate Ernie on his retirement. <laughs> he had more than 30 years. He's 60 years old, just turned 60 years old. To be at the railroad, you have to stay there at least 30 years and be 60 years old. Everybody say, that's commitment. 30 years is a long time. I don't know if you realize that. These kids are like, man, 30 years, people 30 years old are old. You know what I'm saying? Teenagers are looking at people 30. I look at people 30 and think, man, they're, they're young. It's like you get on the opposite side of the fence, you know. So perspective is everything. But it takes a lot of commitment in a job to be tenured to earn that retirement. And the scary part is that it's, the way our generation is working today, if we all just work four and a half, 4.4 year average tenure at our jobs, we're not going to be able to retire. 
How many young people in the room are looking forward to retiring someday so that we can play with remote control trucks? I really want a remote control truck, you know what I'm saying? Hopefully they got a better helicopter by then. You know, I go to these ki people's house, got these kids with these helicopters. I can't even fly them. It's like a toy helicopter. I can't make it do anything. It's a mess. I hope I get that down where I can work it time I retire. Maybe that'll be my retirement present. But it takes commitment to get there. And then I begin to look at some other things that, that, that how culture has changed. And basically, like the last 50 or, or 100 years, commitment has really changed a lot. And another thing is marriage. Marriage is a, a commitment. When I got married to Leslie, I'm telling you, I had to commit. She didn't. I wanted to do a prenup, Brad, but she wouldn't let me. <laughs> it's like, I hear, you know, she's like, no, no prenup. Oh, we didn't have a prenup. Oh, I wasn't allowed to have one, what I'm telling you. Marriage is a commitment. Wherever you stand before God and a preacher, my pastor, I love Pastor Wells. And I, I tell you what, if I just ground him, it's like he, he lives such a holy lifestyle that when I was around him, I always felt convicted just by being around him. When I heard him get down on his knees and pray and, and, and cry out for the church and, and during his uh, time of uh, preparing for sermons, I was convicted around Pastor Wells because I knew he was a holy man. And especially whenever I stood before him with a young lady standing across from me in a white dress and saying some things like in sickness and in health, for richer, for poor. Yeah. So as I'm saying these things, I, there was a conviction on me. It takes commitment to stay married. Somebody say amen. I love Sister Joanne and, and Brother Lovell. It's, it's her, their lives were such a picture of commitment. It was absolute commitment. Because I've heard Sister Joanne talk about Brother Lovell not being such a good man some early times in his life. He got saved during his later years of his life. And he come to church here. And I remember he was committed to this church in such a way that even at the sickest days of his life that he would get up out of that bed. He couldn't get up all week long and even to eat. But he would get up to walk through those doors to come to this church. It was commitment. Anybody remembers Brother Lovell? I, I think the world of him. And then Sister Joanne, she, it's like she's the, the perfect little grandma. But love you, Sister Joanne. But they stayed committed to each other. And they fought some. Had some battles, I'm sure. There was some adversity at points in their life. But their generation was a generation that said, whenever I stand before God and promise something, it means something. They said it was a commitment. And I'm not condemning anybody. I'm, I, I've been through multiple relationships in my life. I've had a lot of bad relationships. I've had some bad breakups, and I've went through some bad things in my life. I'm not condemning anybody. I'm just saying we need more commitment in our generation. And I started looking into this marriage thing. It says online now that everybody used to say it's 50%, but it's a little over 40% of marriages, first marriages, end in divorce. 40%. That means you got a 60% chance to make it. You need some commitment, you know what I'm saying? So 40%. And then it said of second marriages, 60% of them fail. And the farther you go, the more marriages that you go through, the more likely you are to fail. So, <laughs> yeah, stay like JR. Stay with your first one. 
cheaper. That's what he's saying. It's cheaper, right, Mama Jane? It takes commitment to do these. And, and online, the, the article that I read, they talked about that they went out and done interviews of people that had been divorced, and they asked them, and the number one thing, the number one reason, the top reason they gave for divorce, 73%, the highest percentage of all, was lack of commitment. You see, always before, the things that I've thought, and I, I've read some things before, that people said that money was the number one cause of divorce. And usually, money can cause a divorce. If you don't believe me, try to take Leslie's money. It'll cause a divorce, I'm telling you. <laughs> I go to work, she keeps the money. That's the way it's part of, it's part of the rules. But I'm glad because I'm not very good with money. Can anybody say amen? I'm not very good with money. I'm glad I married somebody that can take care of money because I'm a train wreck. I'm telling you, I'll buy new stuff and just, I, I'm a, I'm Earl. Amen? Okay. I got an amen out of Earl. That's, that's when you're doing something at church. If you can get an amen out of Earl, you're, you're doing something. So money can't cause divorce, but this, this that I was reading about, it was a, a national statistic says that 73% divorce because of a lack of commitment. Look at your neighbor and say, you need to be committed. You need to be committed. <laughs> if you get in a relationship, Commit. If you sign an agreement with somebody, commit. If you sign a mortgage, commit. Amen. Commitment is what it's about. And as we see that what the problem was with, with uh, Simon Peter was he wasn't really committed to Jesus. He would say the right things around Jesus when Jesus was there, but when Jesus wasn't right in his face, he wasn't very committed. But Jesus is, is a guy that will, that will deal with your lack of commitments and cause you to become committed. He will, he will cause you to be different than you are. He loves you just like you are. You don't have to change to come to Jesus. You don't have to clean yourself up to be clean enough to come to Jesus. You come to Jesus just like you are. Amen. The Bible says that he will change you from the inside out. Amen. The Holy Spirit will come in. It says that he will come in and he will clean your heart. He will purge your heart. You don't have to make yourself clean to come to God. He will do the cleaning. And it's not my job to clean anybody in this room. For too long, the church has tried to clean people up when they need to leave that to God. Can I say that again? I said the church too long has been in the business of trying to clean people up when they need to leave that to God. And I, I thank God that we as a church are a church that we got people come in here on a weekly basis that's an absolute train wreck. And usually it's their pastor. <laughs> We're train wrecks, folks. And that's okay. God deals with us and he cleans us from the inside out. He purges us and makes us what he wants us to be. But the only thing he's asking us is, are you committed? So when I come to Jesus, he's asking me, how committed are you? Just like he was asking Peter, Peter, how, how much do you love me, Peter? Jesus, you know I love you. Jesus like, yeah, I know how much you love me. Whenever they was asking me a few weeks ago, if, if you knew me, you, you said you didn't know me. That's how much you love me. That's what's going on in, Peter, in Jesus' mind, right? Jesus says again, Peter, how much you love me? Lord, you know I love you.
my sheep. Third time. Let me know it's third time's charm. Anybody grow up in that kind of house? I did. Parents, they give you one warning. You know what I'm talking about? Some of these teenagers, teeny boppers up here don't know what I'm talking about. But, but it's, where, it's where they say one, two, and whenever they say three, it isn't just to say three. When they say three, it's time to get it on. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody ever had a, a, a little persuasion? Anybody ever had any persu- persuasion work? I had some persuasion work done on me, and, and, and they persuaded me to do what they wanted me to do. My mama sat back there. She persuaded me. That's what Jesus was doing for Peter. He was persuading him. He was persuading him that he needed to up his game when it comes to commitment. Why did Jesus ask Peter three times? Peter, do you love me? I think it's the same reason that Jesus has asked so many people in this room multiple times throughout your life. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And I believe that just the way I believe about God and the way that I study my Bible and and see that the scripture is interpreted, there's a place in Peter that says, "For uh, it's not God's will that any would perish, but all would come to God through repentance. It's not God's will for anybody to die and go to hell. Amen. God don't want anybody in hell. He didn't want them in hell so bad that he gave his son the right to come to this earth and live a sinless life and pay the price for sin of humanity. So I'm asking you today, How many times has Jesus asked you, do you love me? And I believe today that's the beckoning call that's happening in this church. God's wanting to know, how committed are you? How committed are you to my son? Sure, you say you love him. Sure, you say you need him. But how committed are you in that relationship? And it's a relationship that we have to look at and say that my commitment level has got to raise. It's got to go up. It's got to get better. I don't think there's anybody in this room that can say our relationship with Jesus is on a perfect level, that we have arrived and we're as good as we need to get. Can anybody say amen? We all could be better, including myself, the first one in line. As I was looking at this and thinking about this, the commitment level and these things, well, that's what it's not supposed to look like, that a lot of divorce, a lot of turnover in jobs. And I thought back to, I, I thank God for um, Earl and Amy. They deal with the kids here and, and lead the uh, children's ministry at church, and, and they love kids. And their son, is Landon in here? He is. He, he went over next door. He loves the movie Titanic. He watches it over and over and over. Anybody ever seen the movie Titanic? On this movie, <laughs> yeah, Earl's seen it plenty. <laughs> right, James? It's Titanic. He loves Titanic. I don't know why. It's like a kid that age, I don't understand why he would like Titanic, but he talks about it and he wants to go to museums and look at stuff about it. It's just amazing. And when I thought back through that movie, Titanic was 
You know, whenever the they struck the iceberg and and when they hit it, and as the boat begins to break apart and, and it begins to be understood that they're all going to die that night. The death is imminent. It's it's here. It's time. We're out in the middle of the ocean. Nobody's around us. There's no boats close enough that can get to us to clear us off. What are we going to do? There's a guy named Wallace Hartley on that boat. He was the leader of the band, the band director. He had recently just gotten engaged to a, to a young lady in his home country. And they come to him and said, will you be the leader of the band on the maiden voyage of the Titanic? This young man, Hartley, his last name, he thinks about his career and he says, if I can do this, there's so many famous people on this boat, if I can get connected, I'll be able to do great things in life. Because all I cared about was music. And as they head out on this voyage and head across the ocean, strike iceberg. Things begin to change. But you know what? One thing we can see about his life, and it's on the movie too, he was committed. Because whenever that began to happen and all this began to happen, he got up and led, through leadership, began playing his violin. And the whole band stayed in tune and played the music to calm the people during their death. All the way until the time of the end, he was playing music. That's commitment. Let's see if you'll come play. Wallace Hartley had dreams, had ambitions. He had life by his fingertips. He thought he knew how the rest of his life was going to go. But the Bible is very clear that none of us is promised tomorrow. There's nobody in this room that's guaranteed that you'll make it home from this service. And I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm just telling you the truth. A young guy that I went to school with just lost his life there the day in a car wreck. It happens over and over and over. Wallace Hartley was committed to what he had signed up to do, and that was to lead the band on the Titanic. His young fiance got word that the ship had sank. And right before the ship went down, this young Wallace Hartley took his instrument, put it in his case, and strapped it to his body, and it kept him floating. And they found his body, and they took it back home. all the way to the end to lead because that's what he signed up to do. With that same commitment, Jesus went all the way through to pay the price for your sin and for my sin. And today I think as he's asking us the same way he asked Peter, step up your commitment level. I'm praying today that there's people in this room that as the Holy Spirit is being ministering to you today, 
through this message that you will know and understand that God's asking you. You need to step up your game. Your commitment level needs to raise. So won't you stand with me if you will. If you'll just bow your head and close your eyes, everybody here. ask you a very simple question. Nobody looking around. Nobody needs to know what somebody else is doing. I want to ask you this very simple question. Is there anybody here to say, Pastor Ben, I've lacked commitment and I can feel today that God is asking me to be more committed. And he's asking me to give my life to him and to commit for the long haul. Is there anybody here that will raise your hand? say that I can feel God is asking me to be in this for the long haul. One, two, three, four, five. True commitment. Six. You can put your hands down. I want everybody here to just repeat this prayer after me if you will. Especially those that raised your hand, but everybody here, I just ask you to repeat this after me. Everybody say, Heavenly Father, I come to you. In Jesus' name, I ask you, forgive me for my sins. Forgive me for my faults. Forgive me of my failures. Lord, help me to be more committed in my relationship with your son, Jesus. Make me clean from the inside out. Change my heart. Change my mind. Make me new by the blood of your Son. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I believe wholeheartedly if you prayed that prayer and meant it, that God is cleansing you. And it's called salvation. I believe that if you've committed your life to Christ today, that he will save you.